I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Lisa. Welcome to episode 42 of... Round the Archives. Which we're recording not long after releasing episode 41. No, it's, it's quite close. So we've yeah. got a shift on. We have. And we've got to get a shift on. We have. Because there's quite a bit to fit into this one as well, isn't there? Is, there is, yes. Yeah. yeah. Now, it's always nice when we get a new voice. Yes, it is. So let's welcome Mr Paul Abbott, who's going to take us on a trip to the... 87th Precinct. <laughs> Hark! It's an 87th Precinct podcast uh, spin-off article. My name's Paul Abbott, and along with two of my good friends, I present Hark, the 87th Precinct podcast. It's the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which were written between 1956 and 2005. We also like to look at the spin-offs, adaptations, and any other stuff we can find. And so today, with my archive television hat on, I'd like to tell you about an American show based on those books that is, by and large, totally forgotten. For viewers in America, the fall television schedule has always brought a number of new shows to the screen. Fans of the police genre could get their laughs on Sunday night with Car 54, Where Are You?, a zany romp around the streets of the Bronx with the officers of the 53rd Precinct. But those who preferred their crime tales to be a bit more hard-hitting could settle down on Monday nights, once The Price is Right was finished, to NBC's new police serial, 87th Precinct. Based on the books by Ed McBain, a pseudonym of the writer Evan Hunter, the writer of The Blackboard Jungle, the show ended up lasting for only one season of 30 episodes, and was destined to become something of a footnote in the history of crime and police television series. A pity, because the source material, the 87th Precinct books, are exceptional. Well told, with memorable characters, detailed procedural storytelling, and ultimately, a massive influence on much of the crime storytelling in books, on TV, and in the movies, that people hold dear today. So is the 87th Precinct TV series from the 60s worth a second look? or a first look, more likely? The answer is definitely yes, but not necessarily because they make a good fist of adapting the books, but because it's an interesting ensemble mystery show with loads of great guest stars. Sadly for Ed McBain, he never witnessed a really good adaptation of his written work during his lifetime, and he was furious when Hill Street Blues came along and ostensibly lifted his entire approach off the page without acknowledgement. If you do want to watch the best adaptation of a McBain book, then look to Akira Kurosawa's High and Low, a phenomenal crime movie based on the 87th Precinct novel King's Ransom. So, to the show itself. The success of the books is in part due to the notion of having a conglomerate hero, i.e. the entire detective squad room, taking turns to be the lead investigators in the stories. The TV show needed to pare this down somewhat and reduces the key cast down to four detectives. Our main hero is Detective Steve Carella, 
played here by Robert Lansing. Lansing was a very familiar face on American TV, but viewers in the UK will probably know him best as Control from The Equaliser. Sci-fi fans will probably also recognise him from the rather peculiar episode of Star Trek called Assignment Earth, where he appears as the mysterious time-travelling Gary Seven in an episode that was intended to serve as a backdoor pilot for a spin-off series which ultimately never materialised. Accompanying Lansing, playing the squadroom's most droll cop, the double-named detective Maya Maya, was the actor Norman Fell. Another well-known face on US TV, Norman Fell is known to most folks, well certainly in the US, as Mr Roper from Three's Company and its spin-off The Ropers. If you think you don't know Norman Fell, well, you might not be able to place him, but you'll doubtless have seen him at some point in an episode of Ironside or The Twilight Zone or Magnum P.I. or Murder, She Wrote or Charlie's Angels, The Bionic Woman and loads more besides. The youngster of the squad room, Detective Bert Kling, is portrayed by Ron Harper. This series was his first major series regular role, although he'd cropped up in all the big Western series as well, his boyish good looks part of his screen charm. Sci-fi fans might recognise him as he played the astronaut Alan Verdon in the TV series of Planet of the Apes. The ensemble is rounded out with Detective Roger Haviland. In the books, Haviland is a brute, a violent misanthrope with a penchant for beating confessions out of suspects. NBC probably thought that wouldn't play so well, so his character in the show is more of a sort of laconic good guy. Gregory Walcott plays Haviland, and his southern drawl is so pronounced that his dialogue has to be repeatedly redubbed throughout the series, and even then he's hard to understand. There's another sci-fi link here, though. Whilst Walcott certainly appeared in loads of films and TV series, he's best remembered as the lead, Jeff Trent, in Ed Wood's legendary Plan 9 from Outer Space. What a legacy! In addition to our four white male leads, which isn't representative of the books at all, with its cast of Jewish cops, Italian-American cops, Puerto Rican cops, African-American cops, and so on. The series also boasted Jenna Rowlands, superstar actor in many of John Cassavetti's films, as Teddy Carella, the wife of Steve Carella, who is a deaf mute. Unfortunately, the scripts don't really have the time and space to do much with the character, and she ultimately only appeared in four episodes. If you've not heard of any of the main cast, then you'll definitely have heard of some of the guest stars that appear. In many ways, the show has more in common with Columbo than a proper cop show, with featured villains played by well-known stars. In fact, episode one features Robert Culp as the baddie of the piece, and he'll be well-known to many of you as one of the actors who faced off against Peter Falk several times in Columbo. In fact, Peter Falk turns up in one episode as a hypnotised idiot. Other big names you might spot include Nancy Reagan, Leonard Nimoy, Beverly Garland, Dennis Hopper, and Robert Vaughan. The programme did find a home in the UK, and, in fact, features in a little slice of TV history when it was named, in 1965, as an example of the sort of show that shouldn't be used to fill up ITV's schedules. Lord Hill was the chairman of the Independent Television Authority, which had, as of 1964, been given the power via the Television Act to force the independent broadcasters 
to change what they were showing in order to provide what they'd call a proper balance. In August 1965, the ITA was concerned that in the London area, between 8 and 9pm, American shows were dominating the schedules. The 87th Precinct occupied the Thursday night slot. There was, said the ITA, an undue bunching of American and crime material in the autumn programmes immediately preceding the news. They probably said it in a posher voice than that, though. Compared with the BBC, anyway, which only had one show from America, which was The Man From Uncle. 87th Precinct had actually been on UK screens for some time by then, though. I have been trying to track down the earliest showing, and I think it was as early as December of 1961, when viewers in the Wales and West TV region first saw the show. The show had only begun in September in America. ATV and Anglia both got the show in 1962, in the slot where other regions were showing the Roaring Twenties. It eventually reached most ITV regions and was clearly repeated for a number of years, to Lord Hill's annoyance, it seems. So let's take a quick look at one episode. By the time the series went into production, there had been 13 books set in the 87th Precinct, of which 10 were adapted for the show. This left nearly 20 episodes having to be written with original material, and of all of these episodes, only one came from the pen of the series originator, Ed McBain himself. This was the episode Line of Duty, originally shown on NBC on the 23rd of October 1961. It occupies an interesting place in the work of McBain as the only non-print-based 87th Precinct story written by the author himself. In this tale, our young and enthusiastic detective, Bert Kling, is headed off duty for the night, chatting to his colleagues before jumping in the car with his girlfriend Claire Townsend. Claire is played by Margie Regan, an actor whose career spanned only two years and a handful of TV episodes. Bert and Claire head off for a date, but as they near the movie theatre, which is showing the film Summer Holiday, not the Cliff Richard movie, because it's not going to come out for another two years, but presumably the Mickey Rooney film that was from 1948. Whatever the picture is, it doesn't matter, they don't get inside the theatre. Bert sees someone holding up the box office and, leaving Claire in the car, he gives chase. The two robbers flee, but not before one of them turns and fires on poor Bert, who returns fire, killing one as the other escapes. He checks on the now dead criminal, peeling back the stocking from his face to reveal that he's only a kid. The titles roll, and we hear a great brassy theme tune from the pen of Morton Stevens, P of Hawaii 5 music fame. As we return from the titles to the scene of the shooting, all ambulances, patrolmen and photographers, Detective Carella has arrived to take statements before we meet Monaghan and Monroe, two investigators from the dedicated homicide squad. In the books, Monaghan and Monroe are used as a comic double act, turning up at murder scenes in order to frustrate the local cops of the 87th Precinct as they try and start their investigations. Here, they're in and out with no banter, but clearly McBain felt he wanted to include them. So, date night is off, funnily enough, for Bert and Claire, and our young detective decides to walk home alone, pausing only to look at the chalked outline of the kid as he passes. Later, Carella is at the mortuary with the boy's mother, who identifies the body. She refuses to believe her son was involved in any crime. Back at the squad room, Carella finds Kling typing up his report. Understandably upset, young Bert can't square his killing of the boy with his conscience. 
You're a cop, Corella tells him. I'm also a human being, Steve, comes the reply. Nobody says you can't be both, our wiser, older detective tells him. If anything's a sign of the times in the show, it's that the following day, Berkling is back at work and, in fact, investigating the very case that he's involved in. To make matters worse for Bert, everyone who knew the dead boy, Bobby, says that he was one of the nicest and kindest people they ever knew. At the police lab, Detective Maya Maya learns nothing. One of the features of the books is the level of detail in the explanations of forensic analysis, and the show occasionally tries to do the same. In this case, Maya finds out that the stocking that Bobby was wearing was given away with a box of soap flakes. If he starts checking for who sold that box now, he should be finished, the lab boys tell him, by Christmas, 1970. At home, Bert is in a deep post-traumatic funk. He's thinking of leaving the force, and so his sympathetic girlfriend, Claire, goes to see Corella and asks him to ask the lieutenant to bring Bert's leave forward. Steve refuses. Tough love is the order of the day with Corella. He goes off to meet up with his stool pigeon, who points him to a poker game where the other robber should be. Later on, Corella and Kling burst in on the game to try and locate Carl, the supposed accomplice to the hold-up. Carl's not there, but one of the guys tries to make a run for it. This leads into a classic interrogation scene, with three cops around our flight-footed poker player, one light illuminating the room, and a lot of shouting. The usual threats work, and the whereabouts of Carl are revealed. Corella and Kling get back out on the streets to pick him up, but young Bert freezes when Carl pulls a gun on him. Steve takes him down. In the ambulance, the cops interrogate Carl, and he reveals that Bobby was in on a load of robberies. He wasn't the angel that it seems everyone thought he was. Later, Bert and Steve watch Bobby's funeral. There's no softening of the opinion of his mother, who refuses to hear Kling's attempted apology. That goes with the job too, Corello tells him. Kling pauses before responding simply. Let's go back to work. And that's it. Usually the episodes end with a little light-hearted squadroom banter scene of the type fans of Police Squad will know all too well. But this story, one of the more hard-edged of the series, simply fades into the end credits. If this story seems familiar, but you're convinced you've never seen the 87th Precinct TV show, well, then that might mean you've been watching Ironside in 1968, where the same plot is reused for the McBain-penned episode of that show, entitled All in a Day's Work. As I mentioned before, McBain was never happy with the adaptations of his books that made it to the screen. There were two series made in Japan, several atrocious TV movies in the 90s, and a sprinkling of other TV or movie adaptations around the world. Even the film of the novel Fuzz, which the author screenwrote himself, was a disaster after a change of director turned it into a sort of incomprehensible farce. McBain himself had some success as a screenwriter, outside of the boundaries of the precinct, though, with his most famous screenplay, written under his actual name, Evan Hunter, being for Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. So once again, is the 87th Precinct worth a revisit if you're a fan of classic crime television? Yes. The cast are generally very good and the stories rattle along well enough in the 50 minutes that they last for. The curse for the established fan of the books is that they're neither gritty, procedural or funny enough. 
and the slick universal backlot on which the episodes were filmed means there's no realism to the show when they get out of the squad room. One novel side effect of this production, though, is that in the film Cape Fear, which was also partly filmed on the universal backlot, you'll see a police sign from the set of the 87th Precinct suggesting that Maya, Haviland and Kling are on duty somewhere in that film. If you'd like to know anything else about Ed McBain and the 87th Precinct, well, I suppose I can only really recommend one resource, and that's our podcast, and all the associated bits and pieces that go with it. We've had some bonus episodes with guests you might already know, and interviews with some folks who knew McBain, and, in all honesty, we're a fairly silly bunch, as episode titles of the podcast such as Dropping a Steam Engine Onto a Battleship, John Candy and the Borrowers, and The Chimp Looks Great might suggest. Find us by searching for the phrase Hark 87 Podcast anywhere and everywhere. Thanks for having me round the archives. Fare thee well, everybody. Many thanks to Paul for that. Yes, thank you, Paul. That's a really interesting series. And as usual, you've sort of dipped your toe into 87th Precinct. I I bought the first book. I'm going to, to... Carry on buying them because I'm interested to see interested to see how it um, moves on through the years. Yeah, and you'll have to listen to his podcast. I as will, you work through but them. I'm going to um, li- read the book first, just in case. And we also watched the episode with Columbo in the acting pigeon, yes, didn't we? Yes, it wasn't an acting pigeon. I think they just put some seed down for it or something. It was a good <laughs> pigeon. Did well. Yeah, but now. November's sort of establishing itself as the month in which we do American shows. It is. Although I would point out this isn't necessarily an American special because there will be other things. There are British things as well, yes. But on the back of 87th Precinct, Mm -hmm. we'll now look at an episode of Star Trek Mm -hmm. with Robert Lansing in. Yes. Which is... Assignment Earth. Space. The final frontier. of the starship Enterprise. It's five-year mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Isis, sweet Isis. They're lovely. Yes. Star Trek. <laughs> Star Trek Assignment Earth. Mm-hmm. 29th mm. of March, 1968. Okay. I okay. weren't born. No. No. Yeah. no. A few were months you? ago, yeah. No, None I, of us were born. No. No. In no. colour. <laughs> <laughs> but the end of season two of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So, what do we think? Um, um, we think it's slightly bonkers. <laughs> we used the bonkers episode. I think it's yeah. fair to say we had great fun watching it. We did, we? yes. yes. It's essentially, this is a potential spin-off series yeah. from mm-hmm. Star Trek. Yeah. And I said, well, let's watch it in that vein because Kirk and Spock don't do much, do they? They, don't oh, do they much spend twenty minutes just watching something. Just, just standing what's going on, room, just wearing yeah. a flower pot on his head. Yeah. But yeah. Guest stars are Robert Lansing, 
from eighty mm-hmm. seventh precinct. Mm-hmm. Yes, Terry Ca- Terry Gar. I nearly said Terry Carr. Yeah. <laughs> Terry Walsh. Terry Gar as Roberta Lincoln. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Isis the cat. Isis the cat, who oh, is very we cute. We love Isis the yes. cat, who looks very much like Martha. She does. She hasn't got Martha's little white bit. Well, that, though yeah. Isis wears a silvery collar. Yeah, she's got a space she? collar. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> but the idea is that Gary Seven beams down to the Earth. Basically, it's a bit of a sort of nuclear warning thing, isn't it? Mm. That mm. He, yeah. he 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 fiddles with a rocket, which is nuclear. And it's just sort of give everybody a bit of a scare, I yes. think, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, prevention of nuclear proliferation. But we start yes. off with with Spock and Scotty uh, like mooching around in the in the transporter yeah, room. Yeah, I don't it's know what not, Spock's doing. Though. No, nothing much to do. He's like hanging around, isn't yeah. he? And Spock's got a worrying piece of equipment which is like <laughs> sparking as though it's oh, from God. like <laughs> young Frankenstein, yeah, isn't it? This is a high tech. This is a yeah, transporter. Why is he making room? that why is noise? It sparking? But Gary Seven beams on board, mm-hmm. uh, holding his pussy. Mm-hmm. We're going to do a lot of jokes. Oh, we're going to have a lot of jokes like that. And and we should say, you did like to stroke his pussy. It's you know pe- people say never work with children and animals. Yeah, yeah. this but, is a great acting cat. But as acting this cats go, cat, yeah, cat's yeah. personality though, fun. Yeah, yeah. 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 But clearly, if you can tell who gets on with Isis the cat, because yes. he does, yeah. Yeah. And, and so does Leonard Nimoy. Yes, Leonard, Leonard Nimoy's stroking the cat, and the cat's really happy. Its little feet are going, yeah. <laughs> which, if you know cats, means that the cat is happy. Mm. So. But, yeah, Gary Seven's been sent to Earth on this mission from, mm-hmm. from a planet, well, I don't know whether it's the planet Zanussi or what, but <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's hidden, uh, <laughs> e- even in, in Kirk's time, so yes. nobody knows about it's it. It's a planet of cats mm-hmm. that have got humans looking after them, right. I reckon. <laughs> but he, he's uh, been, been sent to check up on two agents who were already mm-hmm. on Earth, mm. who, who, were, who were up to stuff, but um, they, they've disappeared, yes. and it turns out, that they've been sort of killed in a car crash. Yes. Um, so he's got to take over their mission. Mm-hmm. And he's got a wonderful apartment full of <laughs> electronicals, hasn't he? Yes. He's, he's got a huge, great big safe, which yeah. appears to serve no purpose. Yeah. But, well, yeah. it's, maybe it's a sort of transporter thing, isn't yeah. it, disguised as a safe? Uh, as I said to you, surely if they live in a block of apartments, mm. somebody noticed a whacking great safe I'm, door being delivered. I guess it got beamed down from somewhere. Yeah. Because it's probably a space safe Straight on door. Space, Straight on top. That's easy for you to say. <laughs> you just had to knock through into next door to yeah. make the space to put it in. So so they would have had to turn precise to yeah. go down onto the box. Yeah, they're, and, yeah. they're really, really advanced, are aren't they? they? So. Yeah. Well, they're more advanced yeah. than Kirk's lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's got a sonic screwdriver pen, hasn't yes. he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, with balls on the ends. Yeah, he's got mm-hmm. a, a, a hidden computer that rotates out of the wall. Mm-hmm. It's invasion all over again. Yeah, and he's got a typewriter that types exactly what you speak. Yes. Which even our phones today don't quite understand. Because no. no. <laughs> I, I asked your, your tablet to play episode 41 around the archives mm-hmm. yesterday, Lisa. And yeah. it says, play around the archives. Episode 41, the spooky special. And it started playing episode 32. <laughs> 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 so that, that's no use. But yeah, te- Terry Gar is sort of the secretary to these other agents. Yes. And she's mm-hmm. a little bit perplexed yes. when she finds him yeah. in, in, in here. Yeah. Ditsy blonde. Yeah. Think yeah. of the term of phrase and not. But I think they work fairly well together. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And if they did have a spin off series, I can't quite work out what the plots would be. Mm-hmm. 
But as, I, as I've said to you, considering some of the things that got commissioned in the late 60s, mm. I, t- I don't think it's potentially the worst. No. No. Um, so... I think it would only last probably a season. Well, yeah, yeah I mean, fair enough. <laughs> but I, I, by the end of it, you, I am starting to think, you know... There's more concerns about having a young 20-year-old girl working with an <laughs> older man. Mm. But that is the way television was and is still now. I, yes, I suppose you're right there. Yeah, you know, you don't get an uh, you, don't you do get, get an str- old woman and a younger man, but it's more often the other way around. Mm. And it's uh, yeah, I mean, okay. Kirk and Spock sort of beam down and then mm. lurk on str- well, not I mean, on, even on street corners, just mm. in the middle of the street. Yeah, blatantly losing his losing losing his um communicator, communicator flipping it out. They've got very like dirty old men coats, haven't they? As well, <laughs> like they've been down the cinema to see something, <laughs> and and Spock's got. A- <laughs> He's got he's got a bubble a bit of not, film. Yeah, well, it's not a bubble hat, but Spock's it's Spock's got a furry hat, hasn't yeah. he? Yeah. Like, yeah. like he's some sort of Russian that's wandered yeah. in as well. He's Nick's Hartnell's um um turned planet hat, hasn't he? Yeah, it's he? like an Astrakhan hat, I suppose, mm. isn't it? And so. we briefly get a, an appearance by what seems to be an, an unknown pair of officers from Car fifty four, where are you? <laughs> About as efficient as as yeah. well, aren't they? What was it you said, Warren? That oh, they can't afford the full uniforms, so they just gave them the rain mat. Just got hats and big coats. Yeah. yeah, they briefly get beamed up to the Enterprise, yeah. don't they? What the hell? <laughs> well, that's the thing. In yeah. Blake Seven, at least you've got teleport bracelets, so you yeah. can decide who gets yeah. beamed yeah. up yeah. next. But not. there's no continuity between episodes of Star Trek when. You need to get somebody out of trouble mm. quickly. You bring them up and only them up at all. Yeah. And um, but it, it depends which episode you're in. Yeah. It depends oh. upon what's happening. But as I said, the 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 technology of the transmat device there is rubbish. <laughs> Absolute <laughs> rubbish. It's so unreliable. Uh, Mr. S- Mr. Scott seems to spend like the whole of the episode <laughs> stood against a wall twiddling a knob. Yeah, his, must, his arm must really hurt. Because he's trying to spy on the rocket, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? When Gary Seven's sa- yes. sabotaging it. Mm. I like the fact that Isis walks all over him when he's led on yeah. his front. Yeah. yeah, that is such a cat thing how, to do. How high are they off the ground? And the cat's mm. going, well, I'm not going on there. I'm going to clamber over my human. <laughs> and later on, it's on his shoulders, isn't yes. it? Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I quite enjoyed that, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, it's good fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's good I, fun. I, I, I didn't mind it because you said, Warren, oh no, not Assignment Earth again. Yes. You said it was on the other day. Or oh, something, it's on the other day. It is one of those ones. It's, it's nice to watch it with company. Mm. If it's on, I will switch it off because you know how often they're repeated on mm. um, the Horror Channel, CBS, whatever it is. Yeah. And it's it always channel, seems yeah. to be. I mean, assignment Earth yeah. every time Be- I put Bear on. in mind the next episode is Spock's brain as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. now that, that is an absolute classic. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't shown you Spock's no, brain. No, you haven't. You've never no. seen Spock's no, brain? Seen Spock's oh, brain. we must show Spock's brain later. I, I keep threatening to show it it's to you. brilliant. Brain, what is brain? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the thing about original series Star Trek is it doesn't take itself too seriously. no. no. So, Especially it, Freddie Freiberg's yeah. series. It, seem, it seems to be a 60s thing yeah. that they yeah. make television that is fun and entertaining mm. and they, 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 there's none of the things now where you have issue, cover issues no, in things. It's, it's very much an all-encompassing one, isn't it? Because yeah. this is this is a family programme rather than a niche programme. Yeah. 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 Because the, we watched an episode of 87th Precinct and that was a bit weird. And yeah. you're like, okay, this is a weird 60s programme. That's fine. 
But yeah, it's just weird. One thing you winced at, Warren, was the the choice of editing when you've got a close up of Spock Mm -hmm. and a close up of Gary Seven, and they keep cutting between the two. But the trouble is that their heads are in almost exactly the same position. It's very off putting, wasn't it? Yeah, well, why don't you use a two shot? Mm. Also, I noticed that the Earth in 1968 appears to have no weather. Because there's, there's no absolutely no clouds on the model of the Earth that they use. It must use. have been very warm that year. Yeah, it's, gonna, it's, it's a warm day. But the other thing was that there's no continuity. when They can be in the same studio shot. Yeah. And the lighting is completely different in each shot of, say, a, two, a, a twosome with um, the Captain a and Spock. A twosome. The Captain and Spock. And then cut to seven, the other side of the transport. Completely different lighting, and they're in the same room. What was you, you said about guards never look at you? Because they've got this room that they're holding Gary Seven in. Yeah. It's, it's the room with the lights around the yeah. entrance, yeah. which so, is a force field. So if yeah. you're guarding somebody, surely you, you should have be a sitting opposite. You, you should be standing or sitting opposite so yeah. you can see what your prisoner's up to. No, I'm going to stand by the side of the door so I can't see at all what's going on and, and wonder why they get overpowered. And then the guard notices that he's looking at him and yeah. the guard looks away yes, as yeah. though he's embarrassed. And he was never searched before he was put in there. Mm. He does do a wonderful gormless expression, that guard, though, <laughs> yeah. when he gets yeah. zapped, doesn't he? It's too natural, I thought. <laughs> But yeah, so I I, I like that, and yeah. I, we we don't do original Star Trek very often. We don't, no. But mm. I do enjoy it when we mm-hmm. when we go back to it. I, th- I think it is is rewatchable. It is. Yes, it is. I, I wouldn't say that about all sort of versions of Star Trek. No, that's the thing. No. But yeah, thank you for that. And mm. uh, yes, we're, we're, <laughs> yes, we will show Lisa Spock's brain at some point. I'm yes. sure. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Warren. Yes, thank you, Warren. He'll be back later in the episode to collaborate on another article. Will he? He will. Ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> and now, Simon and Ken from the Exton Loss Experiment podcast return to look at... Better Off Ted. The Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in wine and space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Hello everyone and welcome to another Exton Moss Experiment segment for Round the Archives. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And we are invading Round the Archives yet again. Today we've got something that Simon's dug out of his magic bag of tricks called Better Off Ted. Viridian Dynamics. Every day something we make makes your life better. Power. We make that. Technology. We make that. Well, no, we don't make cows. Although we have made a sheep. And medicines. And airplane engines. And whatever this is. And all sorts of things. Viridian Dynamics. Every day, something we make makes your life better. Usually. Viridian Dynamics. Life. Better. What's the premise for this one? Um, Better Off Ted is an American sitcom. 
It ran for two seasons between 2009 and 2010, and it focuses on the research department, so offices and laboratory, of a large American company, Viridian Dynamics. Title refers to Ted, who is the head, head of research. The, the main characters are Ted, his assistant, Linda, um, his boss, Veronica, and the two scientists who work under him, Phil and Lem. It's an entertaining little uh, little series. Each each week there is some sort of weird doomsday weapon that um, the team at Viridian have created, and it's Ted's job to either manage the disaster that that causes, or try and rein in Veronica's "How do I sell this with no morals whatsoever?" <laughs> attitude. It's a really entertaining and, and quite odd little series. The episode that we've just watched was Series 1, Episode 9, and it starts off with corrosive and flammable acid leaking through into the uh, the cubicle space of Ted's department. So everybody has to give up their cubicles and move somewhere else. Linda moves into Ted's office um, and is just chatty, 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 and he can't deal with that, so he goes and hides in Veronica's office. But Veronica finds him annoying and starts off by snipping off little bits of his hair that annoy her and ultimately ends up karate kicking blocks of wood in front of him. And when she gets really annoyed, uh, she draws out a handgun and shoots the sofa in her room, all in this completely deadpan, almost almost robotic expression. She's a wonderful character. It doesn't come across quite so much in this episode, but there's, there's loads of episodes where she is just utterly amoral about things. I have never even heard of this before, so it's a bit of a treat for me. It's In a former life, I did used to work in various offices. There was a, a two-year period after I finished university where I, I temped around various offices. This is obviously a much more modern, it's, you know, it's 20 years down the line from that, but those are what offices are, generally speaking, like you've got it's not one big collective it's little pockets yeah and you've got your office rivalries your office romances your um which everyone the the people that are involved in these think that nobody else is aware of and everybody is perfectly aware of the office rivalries and the romances no matter what uh people do to try and keep them secret yeah the, the other um plot string in this episode was the new machine that Phil and Lem have invented uh, that projects a very very precise beam of sound so that somebody quite a distance away has a voice whispering in their ear but nobody else can, can hear it so they they use this to um, to pretend to be God to other mm. people in the, in the department and then because of the whole reshuffle from the, the biocomputer that's leaking acid through the through the ceiling all different members of staff have to be tend to work somewhere else, and there is a female scientist who is sent to Phil and Lem's lab, which Lem fancies her like mad, takes her out for a, for a date. There is a hilarious sneezing moment where, at the end of the date, he leans in for a kiss. He's allergic to her perfume, so he sneezes. Her head knocks backwards and then bounces forward, headbutts him, and knocks him unconscious. And it's just beautifully done and beautifully timed. Then there's one of the office workers who is assigned to the um, the lab office as, as well, and he starts showing interest in this um, this lady scientist. And Lem gets jealous, so uses the um, the whispering machine on him, 
And the whispering machine at um, high power levels can make people spontaneously vomit. Mm. Um, so he decides that he's going to do this to this fella. Um, but the girl walks in front just in, in time. So she's the one that ends up um, vomiting her guts up. The office worker who's been uh, reassigned there takes her home and looks after her and they develop an, uh, a romance that way. So Lem kind of buggers things up for himself. It was an interesting piece and I uh, I could quite easily watch more. They're only just over 20 minutes long. Yeah. Typical American half-hour stuff. And it's full of that nice, witty, acerbic dialogue. Quite rapid fire that you get in things. Uh, Scrubs is an example. Where it's all slightly surreal and that's exactly my sort of... Yeah, I mean, the, the nice thing about Better Off Ted is that all the science fiction bits to it. There are science fiction bits mm, to every are, episode, yeah. but they're very much incidental. Mm. Okay, they 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 drive the plot, but an awful lot of the plot is character driven. And when Veronica really gets her teeth into something, then then she is a she's a, a wonderfully amoral character in much the same way as her character in Ally McBeal was. Mm. I've never saw. I've only seen a few of Ally McBeal. I, I used to catch. Bits and bobs. When Ali McBeal was on, I had a housemate who was quite keen on it, so I used to catch that every so often. Yeah, I could watch more of that. Very much my sort of thing. So we have a couple of things that we do as regular features on our podcast. The first thing is we need to get the tonic screwdriver out and get the lid off the gin. What have we got this time? Our gin review for this time is Tarquin Strawberry and Lime Gin. And this is a little Mm. taster taster gin that I get every month from my lovely sister. And this is a Cornish small batch gin um, made, uh, distilled with lime zest and then infused with strawberries. And it says it creates the perfect summer partnership. I have to be honest... I don't think they're far wrong. I think that's lovely. I didn't expect to like... When you said strawberry and lime, I didn't expect to like this. Now, I know you've had yours neat. I've got a little bit of tonic and ice with mine. Because you're a wuss. Because I'm a wuss, apparently. But I'm going to give that four out of five. A good four out of five. Yeah, that's a really nice one. I'm, I'm getting that. I'm getting a four out of five. I think for a, for a summer afternoon, I would have that over ice and just sip away at it. And it would be lovely. Yeah. Maybe yeah. perhaps on a beach in Cornwall. Yeah, that's really very nice. I don't do strawberry and lime, but it's so subtle and so... I think the lime's subtle. The, yeah. the strawberry comes across very it, strongly. It's not as much as I would think, I would have thought. Unless the well, wine and garlic and camembert and rosemary is uh, denting my taste buds this afternoon. Or possibly I'm just getting a stronger hit of it because I'm not wussing out and diluting it. Oh, behave. Behave. Bring what's left of your glass and let's go... Down into the bowels of Podcasting House to open up the Black Archive. The Black Archive is our section where, instead of talking about television that we're able to watch, we talk about television that we wish we were able to watch. So things that are sadly missing from the the official archives. And what would you like to bring to the Black Archive this time around? This time, I am actually going to choose a bit of film. There was a film in the late 90s called Event Horizon, and it's quite an odd film. It basically involves a mission... It's been a while since I've seen it, but it's... it's Sam Neill, isn't it? It is Sam Neill. Uh, it's basically a mission that goes wrong. The spaceship goes way, way beyond its mission parameters, flies out of the solar system. Doesn't it go into a wormhole? 
and then comes back out of the wormhole. It's been that long since I've seen that, I can't remember. But, I mean, it's quite a, gru- a gruesome film in many aspects. I, I don't really do gruesome. You see this on a daily basis. But, anyway, all sorts of weird and wonderful things have happened to this crew in the interim of this ship going out of the solar system to wherever it's been and then coming back. There was a lot of that film trimmed out and unfortunately in the intervening years it's gone missing and it's one of the latest film examples that I'm aware of where film trims have just completely gone missing. We're talking a lot of film here, it's about 45 minutes I think. So just the premise of what's gone missing and the the details are available, it all sounds absolutely weirdly sort of morbidly fascinating and I wouldn't mind seeing a full a full director's cut of that film. Hmm. Well, I mean, I've, I've always rather liked Event Horizon as a, as a film. I haven't seen it for a few years, but I've seen it a good few times. And yeah, that would be interesting to see. My choice for the Black Archive is something that's high up on the, the BFI's missing list for British television. And that's the British coverage of the moon landings in 1969. Ugh. Because although... Oh, splendid. Other countries' footage has been kept. Our footage wasn't. So we've got the, got the pictures of the um, the landing on the moon. We don't have the pictures of the studio reactions in London. What a pity! And that that's one of those things that's really high up on the on the BFI's. We would like this to be returned wish list. Splendid. So those are our two. Regular features. Well, we have a third regular feature, we which do. we only generally do for Doctor Who episodes. However, because we're not going to be doing any Doctor Who episodes for the for the Round the Archives team, I think it's only fair to give you a, a little taste of our final special guest. I am Persian. Name your price. Thank you, Siri. That was Ms. Siri Van Epp. From uh, the superlative corridor people. Other adjectives are available. Yes, wonderful is another one. Uh, yes, this is where we, uh, generally speaking, Doctor Who. We look at, we look look at, at the drag queen index. Yes, how flouncy are the characters and moreover the costumes? Um, flouncy is more a costume thing. What we want from the characters is a good resting bitch face and Veronica. <laughs> just does the most wonderful resting bitch face. I think pulling a gun out of a drawer, fitting a silencer, and then blowing a sofa to smithereens Mm, with with not even a hair out of place or a raised eyebrow. It's more the the scene where all the the workers are in the uh, corridor complaining to her that um, they, (laughs) they, they don't have anywhere to work. And she turns around and says, I hate to see how much this is affecting you. And they carry on talking. And she said, no... I hate to see how much this is affecting <laughs> and glares at them until they walk off. Now, that's a resting bitch face. It is a well. very well-delivered line, I thought. Um, very little in the way of drag queen-esque costumes because it's all work-appropriate work business mm. attire. But for me, that costumes aside, that pure skill at resting bitch face gets it three out of five. Hours. I was going to say, we'll, we're going to give her a three yeah. for her face rather than the uh, the costume. And we rate this in Olvias. Yes. In the same way as we rate our gins in Bernards. So, so three out of five Olvias and four out of five Bernards. 
And that, boys and girls, gives you a little taste of what the Extramos experiment is like. If you'd like to hear more from us, we are available on SoundCloud and on iTunes. We have a Facebook page, a Twitter account. And an Instagram, although I don't update it terribly often. Do look us up. There are plenty of episodes now available online, and we aim to produce one around once a fortnight. And if you like the sound of Surivanep, we will be covering the entirety of the Corridor People. What a treat you're in for. Wonderful. I can't even deadpan this anymore. Thank you for listening, boys and girls. We shall hand you back to the eminently capable hands of Andy and Lisa. Thank you for having us, guys. See you soon. Bye now. Many thanks to Simon and Ken. Yes, thank you, boys. Uh, another excellent article. They will be back next month. They will. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Now we'll move away from US shows. For a while, yes. though we might return to them later. We may, yes. As Martin Holmes takes a look at... Hancock's Half Hour. I'm never completely certain about when I first became aware of the existence of the comedian Tony Hancock. It could have been those two extracts from the radio series that featured on the laughing stock of the BBC, a, a sampler LP that I once picked up for the princely sum of one ninety nine when I must have been the sort of teenager who didn't buy music but tended to pick up things of a more eclectic nature. Equally, it could have been when I was a student and I picked up Freddie Hancock and David Nathan's rather scurrilous Hancock book when it first appeared in paperback on the day of release, having heard it being nattered about on breakfast TV that same morning. But it must have been earlier than that, surely, for the name to have resonated so. After all, at about the same time I lapped up the repeat season of old Hancock's Half Hour and Hancock episodes when they turned up on Sunday evenings about that time, so I must have already known something, even if he did die before I was even four years old. Or maybe Hancock was so deeply burned into the DNA of the nation back then that, if you were so inclined, you simply knew about him without really knowing why, and despite all of the sex-pistoling and new romanticising that was distracting everyone else around me, back then. Or maybe it was the Kenneth Williams diaries that clicked a cog or two in the rattled mechanism of my mind. I know that for years afterwards I devoured everything I could read about the man and bought volume after volume telling the same tragic tale of a comic genius destroyed by his own demons and the evils of drink. It even inspired a painting or two, especially when I've been hitting the vodka a little too hard myself from time to time. The thing is, we weren't really a family who listened to the radio all that much. I do remember Junior Choice playing in the background of Sunday Breakfast in the house I first grew up in, but as far as radio was concerned, that's pretty much my only abiding memory. Well, that and Radio Piccadilly 261 that my sister listened to a lot back then. Hmm. Maybe Ed Stupot Stewart used to play occasional Hancock clips. Well... Well, it's a thought. Nevertheless, quite how and when I became aware of the lad himself is a memory lost in the fog of time, but as my parents decided that a Reader's Digest Peter Sellers cassette tape collection with biography was a suitable late teenage birthday gift for me, perhaps they could tell that the old comedians were people that I was almost bound to become fascinated by. Or perhaps I already was. After all, those old-time comedians were far more fresh in the nation's memory then than someone, say, like Dustin G is to people of that age now. 
Anyway, I suppose the story here is that once bitten, I was totally hooked on his works. Well, at least those of his BBC television works that were available on VHS and his two starring feature films, because generally they were the only things that were available to me. I came to the radio series far later, and whilst I'm happy to report that nowadays I, ha I now have access to all of the radio episodes that are available on lovely shiny discs, for many years the ones I had were a very select few indeed. The legendary Sunday Afternoon at Home, and a few others, mostly through recordings occasionally taped off the radio and the odd radio collection tapes I picked up from bargain bins. Perhaps I enjoyed the tragic story behind the facade to the performances themselves. Well, it's a thought. But, whatever it was, when I first came across Hancock, he certainly made an immediate impact. And do I have a favourite episode? I think I do. And it's not that perennial favourite, The Blood Donor, nor is it the eternally fabulous The Radio Ham, or any of the others from that ill-fated final series for the BBC. My favourite comes from a little earlier, and was broadcast on the 16th of October 1959 as part of the fifth television series, the very peak of Hancock's broadcast popularity, and is a spoof, or perhaps a parody, of what is also a favourite film, namely Twelve Angry Men, directed with aplomb by Sidney Lumet, the Henry Fonda vehicle, in which he is the lone voice on a jury otherwise convinced of the guilt of a poor lad dragged up on the mean streets of 1950s urban America. This would have been a very familiar film to the audiences of the fifth television series of Hancock's Half Hour, given that this groundbreaking masterpiece of cinema was only in theatres a couple of years earlier. It really is a masterpiece, by the way, despite its simple-seeming plot, and I would recommend it as a movie to watch to anyone. Incidentally, it was adapted from the live television play written by Reginald Rose, broadcast in 1954, which spent decades being considered lost, but then turned up in an archive in 2003, which kind of gives hope to all of us about stuff turning up. One of the series with quite a lot missing is, of course, Hancock's Half Hour, so everything is sort of connected if you believe that sort of thing. The Hancock's Half Hour variation, featuring as it does at least a couple of angry women, despite still being referred to as ang 12 Angry Men, is told across a mere six scenes, which you might be surprised to realise take place naturally on the more prosaic, but arguably no less mean, streets of East Cheam, where Anthony Aloysius St John Hancock... Sinjun Hancock shares his digs or home or house or whatever accommodation is deemed necessary for that week's plot with the scheming crook fraudster pal or whatever of Sidney James played with youthful splendour by the perennially ancient Sid James because he always looked like that didn't he well this one is sort of set in the vicinity of those mean streets although the old Bailey isn't really in East Cheam of course but the Hancock's half hour TV series and by association the characters therein is based there at that time before the schism which led to a relocation of the lone Hancock to a bedsitter in Earl's Court a couple of series later. It's also worth noting that about this time, at the peak of his fame and less than a decade before the final tragedy that engulfed him, with hugely popular shows running on both radio and television, Hancock, despite appearances to the contrary, is about 35 years old. Maybe everyone just looked older back then, eh? So let's turn to the episode itself, as Wally Scott's familiar tuba theme is accompanied, as usual, by the stern television announcer voice saying, BBC Television presents, and we cut the familiar H surrounding that week's version of <laughs> Hancock, breathlessly, <laughs> hesitantly, <laughs> announcing <laughs> his programme, filmed anew each time. And as the applause continues, we get an exterior view of the Statue of Justice on top of the Old Bailey and pan downwards to street level before fading to a courtroom set, where there is a 
trial in progress, and Tony is a member of the jury listening agog to the proceedings, all innocent of face and agape of gob. A policeman, played with quiet notebook-brandishing authority in a coffin spit appearance by crikey Robert Dorning, is under cross-examination, first by the prosecutor Mr Spooner, played by Ralph Nosek, and then by the defending counsel, played by its only flipping Leonard Sachs. The people they could get for such small parts in such a highly popular and, of course, high-profile comedy series is truly amazing. Meanwhile, we discover the unlikely coincidence that Sid James is also on the jury and nattering to Tony, and they engage in a bit of banter comparing the proceedings with those that feature on the well-known The Verdict Is Yours television programme that would have been popular at that time. The fact that the inspector's notebook reveals that the accused thought that the plainclothes officers were teddy boys gives the courtroom much hilarity and allows the scene to focus upon Tony and Sid at the front of the jury box, and whilst the judge, Austin Trevor, an actor not a car, attempts to keep order in a slightly fluffy authoritarian manner as Tony continues to answer back where well, my lud did try and hide his mirth behind that wig of his and has his competence to act as jury foreman and just how did that happen called into question. Sydney, meanwhile, provokes Tony into answering back several times, not least because Tony is made to look a proper Charlie in front of everybody, which increases the judge's vexation with him more and more, finally leading to the you-tell-him response to yet another of Sid's suggestions of what Tony should say to the judge. Then, in order to increase the speed at which justice is served, the judge suggests that the jury need not view the evidence, a stash of expensive jewellery again, which leads to some back-chat about fair trials and Tony giving the thumbs-up to the accused, and the jury being shown said exhibit so that Tony can get an expensive ring stuck on his finger with a lot of visual humour as Tony and Sid attempt in vain to get the thing off and many references to bars of soap and butter and, and another whispered ask him moment which has the air of an ad lib about it. Then, as the summing up is done, the defence counsel gets a round of applause from Sid and Tony after a rousing speech by Leonard Sachs, and right next, the prosecuting counsel is roundly mocked by impersonation, and because Tony's understanding of how things are done is based solely on his television viewing, he wonders about whether they should take longer than the couple of minutes offered by the imagined commercial break. And as the jury are led away with some proper court speech from the always dependable Hugh Lloyd, another of the HHH regular players, we are left to look at the totally exhausted judge as he holds his head in his hands in utter despair and we fade to black. We're only 10 minutes into this particular half hour and 20 minutes of what I consider to be an example of absolute comedy genius is still to come. We cut to a shot of the door of the jury room as we will in slightly different ways each time at the beginning of all of three long scenes making up the main jury room based part of this episode. As in the film, the passage of time will be shown by the removal of jackets and the jury members looking increasingly frazzled, sweaty and bedraggled as we rejoin them in their deliberations, though not in this instance by moving the walls in. Not in a live television studio, collapsing sets had already provided more than a few awkward moments in a previous episode. At first, then, the Twelve, this time including three women and also another HHH regular Mario Fabrici as a juror who will eventually crack, are all looking quite bright and smart, as Sid suggests that one way to pass the time is by having a nice game of cards, and he's even prepared to simply cut the deck, anything under a seven, and he's guilty, to perform his sworn duty. A military gentleman, played by William Kendall, pipes up with what pretty much all of them are thinking, that the accused is guilty as hell and it's an open and shut case. Tony is, of course, the only one who thinks the opposite, and with a swift et tu brute levelled at the always disloyal Mr Sidney James, the score, as they put it, is currently 11 to 1. That is, of course, until Sid realises that they are being paid 30 bob a day, 7.5 nicker a week for their services, which is more than he usually makes on the outside, and he suddenly decides to change his vote to not guilty with a plan to keep this thing going for as long as he can. 
30 bob, about £1.50 in modern money. Seems preposterous, doesn't it? But the past is a foreign country and all that. Of course, when the company director, played by Leslie Perrins, points out that he earns far more than that 30 bob every day, his own thoughts of personal gain are immediately impugned by Sid, who offers to fetch him a punch up the bracket at one point to make his point. The cameras are, of course, favouring Tony for the close-ups, because in many ways it was his face that was his fortune, and his reactions are what make a lot of the comedy sing, which might seem odd, as so much of his surviving comedy was written and performed in the audio medium, but Tony Hancock's expressive face is an exquisite comedy jewel if you are unfamiliar. Once he became so very well known, of course, part of the joy of the radio episodes is imagining those reactions for yourself in the pauses, and they are hilarious. Anyway, we get to the multiple put-downs of the arguments offered by the military gentleman. It's up to Tony in one of two brilliantly performed long speeches he makes during this episode to muster the troops with his We Are Gathered Here Today speech, which goes off on several confused tangents. The personal wives' lives fluff is a gem, and Tony's reaction is priceless, nay, comedy gold, nay, worth the licence fee all on its own, and several actually hilarious uses of the word nay follow, which all leads to him finally petering out and letting the company director have a go, even if the use of the word unequivocally leads to some confusion because in another ad lib, there are ladies present. Then as Tony sees the way the wind is blowing, Tony turns to a rep representative of the gentler sex where the old lady in the hat, probably Maria Lightfoot, but I need to research that more, manages to live down to everything you might expect from the Hangam and Flogham Brigade. She even advocates bringing back the cat. The unsure elderly gentleman is easier meat once the sad tale of a little boy wondering where his daddy with no sun to brighten his morning might be is told he even falls for the breaking boulders into little boulders cementing them back together for other prisoners to break up ploy which is nice it certainly moves sid to tears which doesn't help because we've already got you although pretty soon he's got the cards out again and is hoping to start a party the licentious fool stalemate is reached and the juror who is a farmer pipes up played by Philip Ray, who was one of those character actors who turns up in lots of things, but listeners may mostly remember from his turn as Professor Eldred in Doctor Who, The Seeds of Death, in the late 1960s. Anyway, the stalemate is likely to continue, as Tony's reason for believing the accused to be innocent is that he's got a nice face. And as we fade to black, a dozen dinners are ordered, and Tony is still wondering if they can send in a bit of lard in case we've all forgotten about that ring stuck on his finger. Seven hours later, we fade up on a clock, showing midnight, and our jurors are looking fatigued. Those jackets are off, hair is ruffled, the sets are the same size, and Tony is explaining his theories to the others, as it seems he's been doing at length. There is exasperation in the air. Another poor juror is targeted with tales of his lookalike, and whether he has a brother, and whether that brother is a bookies runner. This is one of the potential theories Tony has for the innocence of the accused man, and it seems that he has indeed got several, and has spent much of the intervening seven hours going through various absurd possibilities and driving them all stark staring mad hmm 14 half hours of hancock burbling on what some people would have given to experience that but of course we're in the world of fantasy now in which our lovable clown is not the rich source of comedy we know him to be but the irritating fool that's keeping the rest of them from getting home the farmer moves over to the window where he is targeted by tony with tales of ruin as his city-born wife is left to run the farm into the ground for him as this trial drags on and on and on for possibly years this is very much the format of the original movie as one by one the men are convinced by henry fonda's juror of the possibility of the innocence of the young boy who was in the dock by persuading the farmer that one trial he knew of lasted three years and a perfectly timed you'll be ruined but you've still got your integrity 
another juror is turned. Sidney, meanwhile, works on the new young newlywed with the possibility of infidelity on the part of his new wife, and the tally becomes 7-5, deadlock. And there seems to be something of a staring contest starting, with Tony tactlessly singing the song It's a Long, Long Way from May to December as the screen fades to black. We fade up again, possibly after the mid-episode break designed for commercials in the overseas sales. In the jury room, it's now 4am, presumably. Although we are playing fast and loose with court procedure here for dramatic purposes. Many of the jurors are asleep, and Mario finally gets to do his cracking up shtick, leading to a comfortable six-all, I think, moment between Sid and Tony. And so they decide to have another go at the rest, and we get the excellent Hancock moment that truly makes this episode perfect for me. The long, mangled logic of the Does Magna Carta mean nothing to you? Did she die in vain? speech, which is astonishingly well-structured as it touches upon Godiva, doubting Thomas, the get-your-air-cut joke is sublime, advertising, the licensing laws, and there's even a bit of Shakespeare thrown in for good measure. Following this, there is a well-deserved round of applause from the assembled jurors, and all but two of the jurors have now been convinced. Ten, two. Then the company director cracks with an oh-do-what-you-like and gives a powerful little speech about crime, the victims, that gets Tony thinking. And by now, the military gentleman doesn't care either, and it's 12 nil. The jury has reached a verdict until Tony changes his mind. That speech has set him thinking. What if the bloke is guilty and they free him to rob somebody else? Suddenly, however, they're all very eager to agree that he is indeed guilty and get this nightmare over. This is understandable and a very rich comedy scene. So much so that the horrors of being stuck in a seemingly endlessly frustrating situation with Mr. Hancock will also be returned to in the Lift episode of the Hancock series a couple of years later. Meanwhile, Sid realises that his nice little learner may be coming to a premature end and with the threat of changing his vote, is able to persuade the others to reimburse him for lost earnings rather than doing so. And as the 30 bobs are handed over, British justice has triumphed again. The episode ends with, spoiler alert, two scenes set back in the courtroom, where, which both start with an almost identical tracking shot down from the coat of arms. The first is the pronouncement of their verdict, which is actually played all very normally, pretty much, and not rewritten for comedy effect at all until the judge remembers that valuable ring from earlier and it's found to be missing. The second is, of course, another trial, and all twelve of the angry men and women are in the dock for conspiracy to steal a, I kid you not, £20,000 ring, which, given that it was 1959, must have been one heck of a ride. As foreman, Tony pleads guilty for all of them, as it would be a shorter ordeal than any trial might prove to be, and a fight breaks out amongst them as we descend into chaos and fade to black. Of course, they do not go to jail. The East Cheam gang would be back the following week for the train journey, as the format of Hancock's Half Hour was that every week, apart from the personalities of the regular characters involved, and sometimes not even then, the slate would be wiped clean and a whole new comedy situation would appear for their comedy. But this is an exquisite half-hour which still holds its charm more than 60 years after it was first broadcast and is well worth a look if you get the chance. The original movie is pretty good too. Many thanks to Martin. Yes, thank you, Martin. He will also return he will. next time. Yes. Yes. Now, Warren joins us on the sofa again mm-hmm. for a trip to Slade Prison with... Yeah. Prisoner and Escort.
Jaws in. And a Happy New Year, Jock. I escort you to your New Year's Eve. And a Happy New Year to you, Fletcher. <laughs> oh, yes, very witty, very droll, yeah. <laughs> Norman Stanley Fletcher, you have pleaded guilty to the charges brought by this court, and it is now my duty to pass sentence. You are an habitual criminal who accepts arrest as an occupational hazard and presumably accepts imprisonment in the same casual manner. We therefore feel constrained to commit you to the maximum term allowed for these offences. You will go to prison for five years. Do you wish to address the court? Cobblers. <laughs> Good afternoon, Warren. One up to you, Lisa. Good afternoon, Warren. Good afternoon, everyone. Hello. That's what they say when they pass the prisoners down the the doors, isn't it? Is through the gates. Hello. One up to you. Is it? I don't yeah. know. Don't really have any personal experience of it. Ah, so. no, there we go. Backdoor pilots. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's Sunday, the 1st of April. So, happy April Fool's Day. Okay. 1973. <laughs> mm. Oh. And three. on BBC Two, Seven of One, Prisoner and Escort at quarter past eight. Uh, so, by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, starring Ronnie Barker, Prisoner and Escort, or Happiness is a Warm Handcuff when a hardened criminal is escorted to prison by a sympathetic warder, featuring Brian, featuring Brian Wilde as Mr. Barraclough, Fulton Mackay as Mr. Mackay. See, the stammer's, get, with, the stammer's getting better, isn't it? With Hamish Roughhead being overdubbed. <laughs> Unconvincingly. Was too, perhaps he was too Scottish then. They didn't want two Scottish Two Scotsmen accents. in the same shot. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's possible. Yeah. But... So Fletcher that, is te- out codding each other. <laughs> yeah. Norman Stanley Fletcher is on his way to Slade Prison, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and neither of you seem to have seen this before, no, which surprised I don't think me. I have. No, I, I can't. I, I, I worked out the little joke of him running around the moors. Yeah, but no, I hadn't seen that before. No, not at okay. All. No. Well, th- this is going to be interesting. So you were assuming that you were going to see. The, the episode with where they have to pee in the where they have to, a great yeah, distance yeah yeah what what from yeah. here with John yeah. Bennett is the yeah, yeah. Is that but, but, but yeah. it's not no yeah. so Fletcher is on his way to prison yeah. basically so presumably it's straight after the trial he's been taken down put in the van the Black yeah. Mariah now we see the uh, the van arrive at the station mm-hmm. and you said it's St Pancras it is St Pancras okay. Uh, have we ever been there? I don't think uh, we've been there. No, there, there I think we've been much. to King's Cross. I don't think we've ever been to yeah. St Pancras. Crossy was livid. <laughs> but they get on the train, mm. and it's a very empty train, isn't it? And they go first class as well, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. yeah. So we're in the sort of compartmenty bit. Mm. Yeah. Do you still get those? What compartments? compartments? Like no. That? no, no. But do you remember those bouncy up and down seats? I mm. do, I do indeed. Mm. But. It's it's sort of very good at sketching in the characters of the two prison warders straight away. It's basically <laughs> nice one and nasty one, isn't yeah. it? Well, I thought Mr. Mackay was more harsher in this than he, he is else. actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's quite vindictively uh, bitter, isn't he, towards mm-hmm. people? Yeah. yeah, but it is interesting because it does mirror the the opening episode of Going Straight. Oh, where, where, where of take course, him. Fletcher goes home mm. on the train, train, same train yes. and Mr. Mackay and Mr. Mackay comes on the train. So I, I like the symmetry of, yeah. of, of this. Um, but yeah, you've, you've got them with their 
uh, with their magazines. With and a the, varying amount of reading matter or viewing matter <laughs> in some cases. <laughs> page 24. And, and you've got that wonderful, very cleverly rude thing. I spy with my little eye something beginning with C. That's enough. <laughs> Constable. <laughs> Which, that joke is actually done in... Um, what's the police carry-on one? Carry on constable. Carry on constable. Yeah, yeah you stupid constable. constable. Yes. <laughs> so that that that's rather clever, but at, as we arrive um, at the station where they're being picked up by by the van to the, take them to the the prison, mm -hmm. you said Warren, the train's changed, doesn't it? Oh, it's yes. gone from an intercity to a a diesel multiple unit. Okay. Well, well. To a little train. It's a little train, isn't it? So we assume that they changed at one point. Right. Yes, they've gone to the little branch line, yeah. haven't they? Because presumably that, that fosters the idea that they are in, in the, the middle, middle of, of nowhere. nowhere. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. Was this how it was, it was generally done? Moving prisoners about? I presume it was. Yeah. Is, I, is, it, really is that how it's done now? Do you know? No, they shove you in a van. Yeah. And you sit in a little... Um, compartment yeah and you just literally get driven yeah because the idea that i might be on a train and you know sitting opposite me is some hardened criminal well, you, i don't think they do that. that's why they're in a first class carriage to yeah. keep well, away from the other passengers well, yeah when we collect prisoners now so if somebody's arrested say for arguments in blackpool yeah we would drive up to blackpool yeah you'd go you actually go and get them yeah, yeah. You wouldn't expect them to like <laughs> travel on the train. Stick on a train. Absolutely not. The risk is too high, isn't it? But there's not a lot of filming in this. Um, no. There, there's two sort of there's two major scenes really, um, which is on the train, and then later on, Mr. Barraclough and Fletcher having their sort of chin wag in in the cottage. Mm -hmm. But as you said, it's some lovely countryside you get to see, isn't Beautiful there? Countryside. And that wonderful wide long shot of the van when it breaks down after Fletcher's peed in yeah, the peed in the petrol tank. tank. Yeah, which is being shot from quite high up by looks of it. Yeah, yeah. So it's shooting down. Where they put the camera, I don't know. Up a hill somewhere. Yeah. I wonder unless the road actually snakes round and mm. they're on a higher level looking down. But it's a very mm. carefully chosen shot and they, mm. they hold it for a long time as well. Did you mm. notice? I was going, when are you going to cut away from yeah. this? And uh, yeah, it, it's, so, it's such a lovely, lovely shot. I'm, I'm glad it's, you know, they do, they do hold on to it that long. And then, of course, you've got Mr. Mackay you notice he's already got his like physical mannerisms down yes. pat he's got the thing with the cuffs and his neck yeah. and then when he's striding off he's got off, the gate hasn't he he's yes. got that very well is it military or is it I think it's his interpretation of what a military uh, swagger would be because it's far, yeah, it's there's too much arms yeah. yes. yeah. yes. yeah. it's almost um, what I would call a bad boy swagger yeah. almost isn't there but do you think that's that's for the benefit of the prisoners when they see him sort of walking it's, about? Yes, yeah. it's marking of territory type thing, isn't yeah, it's, it? It's interesting because how how well the characters are just sketched in by little details yeah. and, mm. and things like it's that. The idiosyncrasies that just isolate them from any other group of um, prison warders. There, I mean, with I like the juxtaposition of height as well mm. because Fulton gives the impression of Napoleon syndrome. Yeah. Whereas the kindly giant yeah. mm. of Mr. Barraclough, who's mm -hmm. understanding 
I wouldn't say he's weak. I would not say he's weak. I say he's easily persuaded, but yeah. I wouldn't say he's a weak character. No, he just tries to see the good in everybody. Absolutely. And sometimes there is the reason he's gone into that job, as he yeah. says, isn't yeah. it? To try and help people and get away mm. from his wife. Yeah. And again, yeah, the the lovely colour of his of his home life. Yeah. Mm. Which you only get hints about. But mm. in your mind, you've sketched in his whole relationship and, and what goes on when he goes home. He's hempecked. He doesn't like confrontation. That's what it basically yeah. is, which is a bizarre thing because he's in a prison. Mm. Yes. So who is the prison? Who are the prisoners? Is he a prisoner? Yes. Or are they the prisoners? Yeah. I mean, it is just so beautifully written yeah. in, in under half an hour, isn't it? Yeah. You learn so much about the characters in this one short piece. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then, of course, I, I, I cheered to see the paraffin stove. Hey, yes. <laughs> One of those upright sort of green things yes. with the flat circular top. That which heat up the buggery and burn you. If which I, we used to have in our bathroom. So, when, wow. so this is a Sunday night. Yeah. If I was in the bath on a Sunday night and it was, it was cold... That's that's exactly the heater we'd have because yeah. because if if you if you sort of I remember if you sort of were, were drying yourself off and you, you sort of dripped a bit of water on the top oh, of the sizzled. thing it would sizzle yes. yeah so yeah I certainly remember having having one we of had, those when we used to have the power cuts we had we used to get the paraffin heater yeah. Out. And there was an old mangle in the background as well. Mangle, you, you like Lisa? a mangle, don't you, Lisa? Yes. What's your official, What's your um draw to mangles then? I was just my gran had a mangle in her kitchen. And because, obviously, we had a, a washing machine and nothing... I'd never seen a mangle, so I used to okay. just turn the handle and watch the, the rollers go round. It was, yeah. I was just fascinated with it. You'd have to play with the mangle each time. I played with time. the mangle, yeah. yeah. You never got your fingers caught? No, I, well, if I did, I never did it again. So. <laughs> Let's have a look at your hand. <laughs> big, <laughs> big flat fingers. Oh, my fingers are still there. Fingers yeah. white shovels. So. <laughs> and then, of course, Fletcher does his... Um, escape into the country mm. and you said uh, clearly they brought along a lighting rig to help him yeah. but how did he escape this is the thing what's he done to be able to felicitate his escape he's nicked somebody's whiskey hasn't he yeah well how much of this is Fletcher making it up on the spot or has he has he sort of formulated a plan no he's just making it up on the spot I reckon I he's nicked um Fulton Mackay's whiskey whilst on the train. Yeah. To get it in, to probably neck it down when he before he goes into his cell. Yeah. But now he's seen an opportunity, hasn't he? And yeah. He's, he's gone, hmm. and he is, as he says, he is an opportunist thief. Yeah. And crook. I mean, Fletcher's language, and and, and in sort of intelligence and ability to mm. to react to stuff. I don't know how realistic that that is. Really, mm. it's very much a writer's sort of character isn't and it it's also showing you the criminal mind is completely different to how perhaps regular joe soap yeah mind works uh, as we do in a normal society whereas we're looking to, to carry out our lives normally they're looking to how much advantage they can gain from mm. something yeah but when he's going through the the sort of stream and like mm. uh, over the sort of walls and, and fences yeah. and things like that, I do like the deep the detail. I wouldn't be doing that at night. Well, I was, was going to say. I mean, I mean, you and I have know your way around the woods, shall we say? Lisa probably less so. Yeah. Because um, of course Fletcher comes from London. Yeah. So I like the thing that he's a bit. 
at sea when yeah. he's in the middle of the country that he mm. gets lost he can't get over a, a, a even a very small river without, without going arse over tit yeah. <laughs> so it's it's comedy but it's yeah. also truthful as well mm. I, I, I do like that so and of course you know the joke he's gone round in a circle mm. and soon we're actually at the prison mm-hmm. and of course Mr Barraclough Mm. Is very much in Fletcher's debt now, yes. which does set it up for the rest of the series. Yeah. That, that's the thing that that, that mm. will that will follow through in that because he will only ever see good in Fletcher. Yeah, mm. that, that, yeah. that's the thing. So, so if you haven't seen this episode, it doesn't necessarily matter because you can still enjoy the rest oh, of the but series. Uh, but it does mm. colour, I think, if you oh, then watch the, re- so, yes. the rest of the things. So that's mm. why it works very well as a one-off play. Mm-hmm. But also very well as a setup for a series. Yeah. So I, I, I think we have to mm-hmm. give them the credit for that. So. And it's it's interesting that um, the BBC rebooted Porridge mm. um, fairly recently. Yeah. And that it only managed two series before it was axed because the viewing figures dropped. Because people now don't have the sympathy they had in the seventies of yeah. uh, for that way of life i mean that that's the thing fletcher is although he's you know the the bad penny he's very much the hero of this isn't yeah. he very much a social um uh a social reflection of what was happening wasn't yeah. it yeah yeah but it might be that the fact that when they rebooted it they made it his grandson and they made him a cyber criminal criminal who did stolen money from people so, no, whereas fletcher uh, steals yes but if you think see that more. that would get no I, I can't see that getting sympathy from no. anybody i mean it didn't um you know, as as Fletcher says, there's been there's loads of Fletchers in Australia, and mm. so it's it's the realizations that there are always going to be thieves in the world. There are mm-hmm. always going to be people taking advantage, but you don't imagine him to be a nasty, vindictive criminal. No. And the fact that he's got the he's got the flannel, hasn't he? He's got mm. the old flannel and everything that where you would think that this is a horrible situation to be in he's working his time he's working his porridge but he's doing it the only way he knows how which is taking apart the system with humor mm. finding the cracks and basically shoving a massive great wedge in them to make them bigger and to show show up that you know the hilarity of what could possibly be a, a, a life-breaking situation for anybody who's not been in there there you are there's prisoner and escort a Absolutely, very a yeah. very strong yeah Oh, you yes. know, a very strong setup. You can see why they picked it up for a series. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's it's very clear that this mm. this this has got legs, and you yeah. should pull this to to a series. So, mm-hmm. well done, everyone. I think. Yes. Yeah. We'll see you again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Many thanks to Warren for joining us. Yes, thank you, Warren. It was great fun to do it with him. It always is. It is. Right. We've only got one more thing we have. to do. Yes. And then we'll go into the end credits. We will. So we'll say thank you to everyone who's yeah. helped. Yes. And thank you for listening. Yes. Hope you've enjoyed it. And we'll be back again soon. We will. Well, in December. That's the idea. Isn't yeah. It? So, yeah, thank you. And we'll mm-hmm. see you again. Yes. But to round off... Paul is joined by Nick to look at Get Smart.
Hello listeners, it's me, Paul Nishayeti, from the Charlotte Podcast, reporting here for Van the Archives. So, what series am I going to cover this time? Well, this time I'm going to be discussing the series Get Smart, but I'm also going to be dragging my good friend Nick Goodman into uh, my article. I'm going to give you a brief sort of overview of Get Smart, and then I'm going to review a couple of random episodes. Get Smart is a spoof of the spy genre, and Nick, of course, he is a big fan of James Bond. So I thought it would be interesting to have somebody who is a sort of fan of the genre that Get Smart is spoofing. I don't know, just in case he picks up anything um, that relates to James Bond specifically. But uh, anyway, as ever, I've got my trusty Wikipedia page here. So Get Smart is an American comedy television series that parodies the secret agent genre that was popular in the United States in the late 1960s. The programme was created by Mel Brooks and Buck Henry and had its television premiere on NBC on September the 18th, 1965. The show stars Don Adams, who also worked as a director on the series, as Agent Maxwell, Max Smart, or Agent 86, and Barbara Feldon as Agent 99. She was kind of like his number two. She was always there with him on his missions. Out of the two of them, probably was the brains. <laughs> there were lots of other characters, and some recurred, but the main one is Thaddeus the Chief, played by Edward Platt. Apparently the show was created to capitalise on the two biggest things in the entertainment world at that time, James Bond and Inspector Clouseau. And Mel Brooks has been quoted as saying, it's an insane combination of James Bond and Mel Brooks' comedy. Another example of Get Smart is if you were young enough to grow up with Inspector Gadget, Get Smart is sort of the superior live-action version of Inspector Gadget in a way. But, well, that's that's not really a fair comparison, but uh, Inspector Gadget is voiced by Don Adams, who played Max Smart. So, yes, that's why they're often compared. Uh, Get Smart's known for a number of catchphrases, and it's one of those shows that I think... I first saw when it was repeated on Channel 4 in, was it maybe the late 80s or early 90s? I don't remember them showing all of the series. That might be because the final series was on a different network, so perhaps when it was sold to Channel 4, it didn't include that last season. Or maybe I just missed it. But I think it's one of those shows that I grew to love as I watched it, and the catchphrases work the more episodes you see. One of my concerns when I show Nick episodes is that I don't know that he's ever seen an episode before, and so the the sort of magic of the catchphrase won't have that same effect. But uh, but hopefully we'll both get something from watching the episodes. I own the complete box set, but uh, I've not seen episodes very recently. So there's a possibility that a show that I liked a lot when I was in my teens or early 20s, maybe it'll have lost some of its charm because my humour has changed. I know um, series like The Goodies, which I know a lot of people still love, I don't enjoy like I did when I was in my teens or 20s. Anyway, a few more facts. There were five seasons of Get Smart. The first four seasons were on NBC. The final season was on CBS. Each episode was about 25 minutes. It ran from, as I said earlier, September the 18th, 1965 to May the 15th, 1970. I did mention catchphrases and I would say that a lot of them are very specific to watching the programme. They don't really bear repeating outside of the show. Would you believe? Good thinking, 99. Missed it by that much. Sorry about that, Chief. The old such and such trick. 
and loving it. But once you're into the show, the catchphrases are a large part of what is charming and jackalsome about the series. The same way that James Bond and Man from Uncle have their sort of recurring baddies and um, nemesises. Max Smart, who works for Control, their nemesis is Chaos. K-A-O-S. An international organisation of evil. By season four, Max and 99 are married. By season five, they've got twins. And as has been noted, Agent 99 became the first woman in an American hit sitcom to keep her job after marriage and motherhood. So before I uh, show Nick a couple of episodes, let me mention a few notable guest stars. Barbara Bain, Ernest Borgnine, Victor Bueno, Carl Burnett, Jonathan Harris, Martin Landau, Julie Newmar, Leonard Nimoy, Vincent Price, Cesar Romero, and many others guest starred. I suppose Get Smart also fits in with other series, some of them serious, some of them not so serious, such as Mission Impossible, I Spy, Batman. Get Smart sort of definitely taps into the same sort of stream as a lot of those shows from the late 60s. There was a fair amount of merchandise, books and comics, plenty of gadgets... And four feature-length films have been produced following the end of uh, the series. The Nude Bomb in 1980, The Made for TV Get Smart Again in 1989, a 2008 movie with Steve Carell as Smart and Anne Hathaway as 99. There was also a short-lived 1995 weekly series, Get Smart Again, that came off the back of the uh, Made for TV movie with quite a few of the uh, original cast. There are quite a lot of other agents that uh, you see in the series who who recur. One of them being Jaime the Robot and another being Fang, Agent K-13, a poorly trained control dog that only really appears in the first couple of seasons. Anyway, I've said quite enough. I'm uh, going to go away and select a couple of episodes and then I'm going to show them to Nick. Let's see what he thinks. Let's see what I think. It's been a while since I spent time with Max Smart and Agent 99. Well, Nick, I have you here for um, your introduction to Get Smart. Yes. Um, it's, 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 it's a random introduction, yes. and I've not watched the episodes for quite a while, so I was trying to work out which episodes would perhaps be best, but, you know, it's a matter of um, sort of watching and seeing what you think. Yes. Um, the episode I've chosen is called Bronze Finger, uh, which I presume is going to be at least some way a spoof of Goldfinger, yeah. uh, which seems appropriate as you're here and a James Bond oh, fan. Indeed. So let's see what see what we think. Here we here with Bronze Finger. Oh, Max, I just love surprise parties. Me too, 99. Boy, time really does fly. Do you realise, 99, that Agent 54 will be 36 today? My gosh, it seems like only yesterday that 54 was 35. What time's he coming, Max? In about an hour. I told him to be here for a surprise party promptly at 8. Oh, hey, want to see the present I got for him? Oh, I'd love to. It's a painting, 99. Oh, Max, I didn't know you were painting. Oh, yes, I do a lot of painting now. The control psychiatrist said that it would be good therapy for me to counterbalance the violence and brutality in my work. So I painted this picture of Agent 54 shooting and stabbing a chaos man. What do you think? Um, it's very interesting, Max. Um, reminds me of Picasso. Oh, that's too bad. It's supposed to look like 54. Oh, 
That must be the chief. Oh, I'll check the birthday cake. Mr. Van Cleft has arranged for 99 to be planted in the museum as a guide. And Carlson has devised some very unique art weapons for this mission. Now, what do these look like to you? Well, they look like ordinary paintbrushes, chief. Two of them are. What's this? Hey, chief, you painted a bullseye. Now, this may look like an ordinary art palette, but actually it's a bulletproof shield. Go ahead, Max, try it. Take a brush and shoot. Are you kidding, chief? I might kill you. Well, just make sure you hit the palette. Well, okay, chief. You ready? Ready. Sorry about that, chief. Wrong brush. Wrong brush. So we uh, just watched Bronze Finger. Yes, indeed. What did you think? I very much enjoyed it. I, I, I like American telly in the 60s. Uh, I, it's always very well scripted and fun and bright. And um, I, yeah, I, I've, um, I mean, this is, uh, we, we have a few um, on, on DVD. But uh, this is, it's actually, I, I can't put my finger on it. It's, this seems to bring something fresh to the table. Um, obviously, you've got. It's a bit like uh, as the same vein as the obviously the the Man from Uncle Bond, and also production style. It's very similar to Batman. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's that episode. It's, that episode was from sort of autumn '66. So. But you can see. I mean, I, I didn't realise before now because I, I know very little about this series. But I, I didn't realise by now uh, until now that. Um, Mel Brooks was involved, yeah. and it's got that very easygoing, smart humour of his. Uh, that you know, the, the most terrible situations are sort of kind of um, d- 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 diluted by you know by, by the you know kind of like the um, what am I saying? Juxtaposed with the, the, the sort of especially when the agent comes in and <laughs> kind of twig that he's dead. And uh, yeah, well, Max is Max is sort of. Slightly stupid, and ninety nine is the clever one. Really. Yeah, it, uh, there is. I, I was quite pleased because uh, I, I don't know if I've ever seen that episode or not, but it certainly was a good one to choose. Oh yeah, I, I went, um, was worried. I know my memory of Get Smart is that there are a lot of catchphrases, and you got one of them where he kind of goes, "Would you believe? Would you?" Be-? Um, but but I was worried that the, it was one of those shows that. Um, do you really had to know the catchphrases? You had to watch quite a few before you could get into it but actually yeah. watching that episode that wasn't the case at all it was it was just funny yeah and you maybe you didn't get all the catchphrases yet but um that they weren't the only thing that the show was about by any means was, they were very small yeah i mean it was very smooth and witty and and e- very easy to watch i didn't remember agent 13 agent 13 appears in weird places like a lot of this episode was um it was about an art gallery and a forgery and bronze finger was supposedly um an art forger um and and agent 13 appears in the art gallery and he's just one of the persons standing in the place of one of the paintings and then he appears at the end in the safe that's a lovely it's a lovely it's a lovely idea that because um it's you know getting hooked up on 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 the lady in the picture (laughs) (laughs) he gets jealous he thinks that max is after his girl who's just actually a painting (laughs) and then at the end when he's in the the safe um, Max says, "How did you how did you get in there? Meaning, how on earth did you fit in there?" And he just right. says, oh, he's just, he's just getting the combination. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, I, I you know I like Bond. Uh, I, I haven't seen Man from Uncle for years, but uh, I, at the time I, I remember enjoying that and um, and the Flints. Uh, Ali's more into the Flints than I am, but uh, I've I've um, 
Yeah, yeah, all this sort of thing is is my bag, baby. And of course, talking of <laughs> being my bag, baby, it's it's uh, you can see where Austin Powers got there. Yeah. But the, the kind of the flip comment in 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 the sort of dire situation or the sort of nice little character pieces uh, that reminds me quite a lot of uh, your own work, actually, with um, uh, something like um, oh, not. But um, oh, the one that came before. Right. Yeah, it's it's it, it's you can see shades of Roland there as well. I think there's an episode on this disc which we're not covering this time, called Kiss of Death. I think it involves a poison lipstick. Yeah. Now I actually had written a story before I saw this about somebody, like a short story. I think not even a funny short story, yeah. but about a poison lipstick. And then I saw, I remember then seeing the Get Smart episode mm. and thinking. Hey, I did that, but I obviously did it twenty years after they'd done it at the time. This was back in the eighties. I mean, wait, but, very quickly. Is it half an hour? Oh uh, yeah, I mean barely that. Probably twenty-two minutes. So. Yeah. We'll watch another one from season four. One of the things I was going to say uh, was that, um, it, in a way, it was reminding me of. I'm a big fan of the the silly bits at the end of the Avengers episodes. Yeah. In fact, sometimes I'd just like to watch the funny bit, the, the funny simple bits at the end. And some of the, uh, and, and particularly by the time of Tara King, which is my favorite era. Um, more about that later folks. Yeah. Um, well, not this, not this episode, but anyway, um, that they are particularly outlandish and weird and, and silly. Um, and, uh, I would well fit into an episode. I, of Get I Smart. Liked, I like Tara King. <laughs> Um, but the the silly um, yeah, the silly bits at the end of the Avengers would fit very well into a gets my episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is Max. I've made contact with the three suspects. That's fine, Max. Now listen, I just remembered something that Agent Fifty Four told me. The night he was killed, one of those three asked him to stay late. Now it could happen again, so be careful. Don't worry about me, Chief. I'll be my usual alert, intelligent self. That's what worries me. Managed to deliver a real setback to chaos. I don't think I have to tell you how much this means to us. Tell us anyway, Chief. Well, with Franz Finger and his cohorts out of the way, that means that chaos will have to find a new method of getting money for their operations. Like what, Chief? Well, I imagine they'll go back to bank robbery, extortion, and kidnapping. Well, it'll be nice to have things back to normal again. But yes, a, a thumbs up. Very, very enjoyable. Yeah, I thought we'd watch one um, from a couple of seasons ahead just to sort of see what it looks like in sort of 68. Um, With uh, Euro Yes. <laughs> okay, um, I'm going to go and choose one. Yeah, <laughs> see you on the other side. Good afternoon, 86. Dr. Albert Hellman, America's most brilliant gerontologist, bacteriologist, and orthodontist, has been murdered. Dr. Hellman has just recently concluded 40 years' work on the theory of Hellmanivity. That theory is now believed to be in the possession of Chaos's top agent, the leader. Control has never been able to learn the identity of this cunning and ruthless agent. But we do know that he has plans to get the theory out of the country sometime tomorrow night. That doesn't give us much time. That doesn't give us much time. <laughs> Should he succeed in delivering Dr. Hellman's theory to Chaos headquarters in Europe, the human race will be faced with extinction through Hellmanitis. What is that? I don't have to tell you what that is. Your assignment is to discover the identity of the leader and recover the Hellman theory. Should you decide to accept this assignment, this department will disavow any knowledge of your actions. Should you decide not to accept it, you're fired. As usual, this tape will self-destruct in exactly five seconds. Maybe 
26. Right, well, we've just watched um, the first episode of season four from, from um, sort of autumn 68, and that was called um, the, was it the Impossible Mission. The or the Impossible Mission, mission, mission yeah. yes. Um, which I again chose because I thought it was probably going to be spoofing Mission Impossible, yeah. and it was. It was indeed, yes. <laughs> Although, it, you know, it was quite, um, had its own little identity of its yes, own, because they assess in there the sort of entertainment world. Yes. The, the, the regulars get up in some rather fetching Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and Stan Laurel. The, and the the Mission Impossible moment at the start was when he when he chose that when, when he got picked for the mission um, was particularly funny because everything was when it, when it exploded yeah. the only thing that didn't get destroyed was, was the tape a, recorder which kept on repeating itself. It was that that was quite a nice gag. Also, yeah. I mean, um, the other series to do that uh, uh, spoofing Mission Impossible was a little-known cartoon called The the Cown Cats, which I used to watch when I was a kid, and they always had made a great faff of this take will self-destruct in five seconds, and they went, oh, right, where's it going to go? Where's it going to go? Again, kind of, and uh, this this kind of was an inversion of that, because it was... Uh, the tape the didn't, <laughs> didn't explode. But, yeah, another good episode, obviously, from an autumn that's... Uh-huh. important to me I guess yeah. <laughs> I, I, I was well, I, uh, just over a month afterwards I made my debut into the world yeah. you see 99 it's not easy to say well it's it's not easy to say to say I love you Max yes well why don't you let me say it for you I love you Max no no 99 that's not what I want to say I wanted to say I love you 99 no I'm saying I love you too Max um, and uh, rather sweet because rather innovation because these these characters have been around for three, three seasons and uh, well would I be revealing too much to say that uh, they actually get it together? Yeah, they're, they're finally uh, yeah. the, the first episode of the fourth season. Yeah. Um, and, and I believe in the fifth season, they're not only married, but they've got a baby. Yeah. Um, which I think the fifth season was on a different channel because I'm sure when Channel 4 showed it back in the 90s, when I first saw Get Smart, they never showed the... Uh, final season so it was only it took me until i bought my box set to yeah. see those ones but no again highly enjoyable a lot of fun the, they do the mission impossible bit where they're picking the um um the picking the faces from photographs and it made me chuckle because the first photo was the the character from the mad magazines yes <laughs> and then, mona lisa the mona lisa and I mind betting that some of the other faces are actually production members or topical well i think i think uh he tore up frank zappa i'm pretty sure that was frank zappa yeah um and um and there was there was another man who i don't know i guess he looked a bit like he could well, it'd be like a, a Johnny Carson type, but, yeah. uh, but I'm not sure. But uh, that was good. And I also, because uh, uh, having not seen it for such a long time, I can't even remember. In a way, it was quite similar in that, um, you know, when, when she tried to come into the flat and he was questioning her. And I'm not sure whether that's something that happened every episode or it, it, happen, it happened to happen in the two episodes we've yeah. seen. But um, and I'm trying to unpick now what are running jokes and what are coincidences. Mm-hmm. But um, there was a very funny scene 
where he's locking all the doors and double locking, and and, and then she <laughs> just walks in, it. and then, or then he does it again, and then the door creaks open. That's that's a nice sight gag. But chief, I don't know anything about playing the trumpet. But with this trumpet, you don't have to know how to play. You see, this is a computer trumpet. You just tell it the song you wanted to play, then finger the valves as though you're actually playing it. Two minutes, Miss Simon. Oh, I'm sorry, I have to go. Now we've gotten ninety nine a job in the chorus. She'll contact you if she discovers anything. Now remember, Max, you've got to find out which song the theory has been transposed into and stop it from being played. Dr. Simon, this is the most fantastic invention I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, one of the most notable bits, I think, of that episode was um, when they're, they're trying to sort of uh, find the... Well, this this guy called the leader, isn't he? he yeah. He's a, um, he turns out that he's that they find he's part of this band and then uh, Max has to have this trumpet um, to join the band that that is a computer trumpet itself. yeah it plays itself it turns out that the the the, the baddie uh, who's also in the band also has a very similar trumpet yeah. uh, well it's, it's actually quite refreshing to obviously this is the 1960s when computers were mm. brand brand new and uh, it was nice it was nice just for a change to have com- uh, a, a, the computer technology that could work now, you know. Well, yeah, because usually computers huge things with real to real kind of thing. Whereas uh, what he pulls out it could actually yeah, yeah. pass for technology today. Well, also because the thing was, you told the trumpet what song in it, yeah. and it just played the song it's for you. It's basically Alexa, isn't it? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, they <laughs> created Alexa <laughs> back in '68. Uh, and, and of course, they have a chase scene, which is all done sort of silent, and almost turns into sort of Scooby Doo, where where um, the, there's two baddies, and then there's Max and Ninety Nine, and they all they're all running around in, in twos, and then at one point Max runs across holding the hand of one of the baddies, and Ninety Nine runs, across, and, and it's very cartoon. That, that, that sort of thing uh, with the, the, the way that the rather splendid set with the coloured doors and things yeah, like that. Very, yeah. I, I should have guessed that. You know that was wasn't just for that scene. You know they yeah. had to do a complete chase. Yeah, it's very very sixties, very, very colourful. There were some hippies, weren't there? In the yeah. uh, oh, that was the other thing. There was who was it from? Play- Matt? Oh, um, uh, James. Oh, oh, um, I forget his name, but uh, he, he played Klinger in Mash. In Mash. And he, we, it was also the Arab in um, Cannibal Run. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was a he was a hippie kind of DJ. Wasn't yeah, he? well, he was kind of he was a one of the agents, uh, and, yeah. and um, of course, there's, there's, the thing. The more you think about it, there's all these little yeah. things. Um, so, so they have a private conversation, and they play the record player very noisily. So, but they have to end up shouting over it. So, um, and then there's all these hippies. So you can tell it was '68 rather than maybe '66. Yeah. But then there was the other joke they did about that they could only have a private conversation when they went up into up in oh, the airplane above gag, yes. 30,000 feet and that's I mean they had yes, a little conversation and of course every time we forgot something they had, had to go, go back up again it was all stock that, footage that was, and, <laughs> and, and also it didn't matter if it was stock footage because no. it, 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 you knew it was stock yeah, footage yeah yeah it was just, but no it was um that was and, a nice game. And they had yeah. the uh, the suit phone as well. That yeah. was um, that because they they had like he oh, had a, he had a garter phone, and yeah. then there was another garter on there which was tapping but into his phone, leading and, to a very Bond quip. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of don't don't buy anyone, don't don't uh, buy a good one, don't take it off the peg. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and oh, there were sorts of so many little clever little jokes. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I'll use the jacket form.
Hello, Control. This is Maxwell Smart. Put me through to the chief. Max, that's terrific. I'd love to have one of these for my apartment. Yes, we'll make sure you have it custom made. Don't get one off the rack. <laughs> yeah, oh, the, the one thing I was going to say, going back to the first episode we talked about, Bronzefinger, um, they, they did that sort of uh, cue scene, didn't they? Yeah. Um, where they're sort of showing Max about the, the, the paintbrushes that are supposed to be guns but he picks up the wrong one and splashes yeah, him splashes across. yeah but I, I was going to say that I forgot to say at the time that's not something that happens every episode that was obviously another now element that sort to of the... slapstick is um, very easy to do badly mm. uh, or very easy to do unfunnily but it, it was actually really well done it's yeah. difficult to if, if it, it, it was is the sort of scene that might have ended up on Rent a Ghost or Granddad <laughs> yeah. and and being and full of you know, you know but it, it was actually rather good. I think Gatsby definitely reminds me of things like Take the Money and Run, and yeah. um, the Woody Allen film, oh, which yeah. we both like. Um, yeah, I think I probably like it even more. <laughs> I would have to have a proper rewatch. Yeah, um, they're they're all fun. I I think I probably channel Don Adams sometimes in the podcast because he plays silly very seriously he takes yeah. it totally seriously and I, I like doing that when yeah. I'm doing uh, sort of acting and I did in Sutton Park I, I, I took the mickey out myself but was play, played it yeah. often played it quite seriously even though yeah. I knew I was mocking myself and uh, I think so I think um, another reason that gets smart probably is my cup of tea because it's very sort of I know, can see my sense it, of humour yeah, I can see how um the, the some of the humour in it uh, and and the sort of uh, the, the assignments and things like that were, uh, filtered down to some of your particularly early nineties work. Yes, well, uh, and even even unknowingly, as I was saying about the lipstick thing, yeah. that that was I remember that being quite a surprise yeah. that that I'd come up with that idea, which had also been yeah. you know it wasn't like, oh okay, so a lot of people are thinking uh, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like I it wasn't the case where I'd seen it on the show. It, it was I just happened to see it and I was like. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's not just... It must be a good idea if, if, if Get Smart's used it. <laughs> Mind you, I, I, it's, um, I know that uh, there was an idea for a play I had, like a Christmas play I had, and it turned up on one of the Matt Smith's Christmas episodes of uh, uh, Doctor Who. Mm. I thought, oh, I feel like <laughs> can't really use that now, can I? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was a... I think... I think I uh, I picked two good episodes. Yes, I think you did. <laughs> well done, me. <laughs> but no, but again, highly enjoyable. Yeah. And, uh, so, yes. Thank you for bringing it on. Uh, I should bring some more. I have to bring some more at this rate. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so, well, thank you very much, Nick, for uh, yeah. for watching these, and um, thank you very much for listening to my article, listeners, or our article. <laughs> That was episode 42 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Paul Abbott, Warren Cummings, Simon Exton, Ken Moss, Martin Holmes, Paul Chandler and Nick Goodman. On the musical side, you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Prisoner and Escort was by Dick Clement and Ian Lafreno. 
And the producer was Sydney Lotterby. Mama's coming. Wave to her when she's coming. Let her jump up. Good girl, right? Go in the window.